Hi, it's Alan Alexandrov again, and I'm here at the Global Symmetry Project. You can find our research efforts uh, at globalsymmetryproject.com, and um, you will see there the work we've been doing in our various podcast series, uh, and um, also some videos uh, and uh, articles and particularly our new special issue on uh, strengthening uh, the global governance by strengthening the G20. It's my pleasure today to sit down again with my good colleague, Eve Tiberjan. I wanted to bring him into the virtual studio uh, to talk about the impact of Shinzo Abe uh, in Japan and indeed on the emergence of Japan within the Indo-Pacific. Of course, uh, Shinzo Abe was assassinated uh, relatively recently. So, uh, this is uh, episode 25 in the NOW series. Eve is the uh, Director Emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research at the University of British Columbia, UBC. He is uh, currently a professor of uh, political science, and he is the director of the Center for Japanese Research, as well as holding the Kanwakai Chair of Japanese Research at the university. He uh, is as well a distinguished fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, and he is the Canadian PAFTAB Chair. So let's welcome Eve back into the virtual studio. So welcome Eve uh, to the virtual studio again. Thank you, Alan. It's a great pleasure and honor uh, joining the the podcast again. (laughs) It's great. So uh, let's discuss uh, the impact of uh, Shinzo Abe. Uh, Matt Goodman from CSIS, a colleague of ours, uh, reflected many when he began a very recent column by saying, it is difficult to make sense of the shocking news of the assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Now that partly reflects uh, not only the shock of his assassination, but the kind of violence, uh, but that kind of violence in Japan. As you're well aware, it's very rare that that occurs. But then Matt goes on to say, Abe was the most consequential politician in modern Japanese history. His legacy, while not without controversy, includes a broad range of accomplishments from strengthening Japan's defense to reinvigorating its diplomacy to making Japan a more open and accessible country. So, um, there is a, a, an alternate view, he then says, uh, with, with a less charitable view, perhaps, of Abe's long tenure as prime minister. So, Eve, uh, let's start with Abe's accomplishments. What do you think stands out particularly in his lengthy two stints as prime minister in Japan? Yeah, thank you, Alan. So uh, first, I'll say as a preface that, uh, you know, it's always very, very hard to say who is most consequential in a long post-war series. Uh, sure. I think from a social science perspective, 
it would be hard to downplay the role played by Prime Minister Yoshida right after the war, the one who negotiated the end of occupation and we set Japan on its trajectory of the post-war uh, with uh, you know, the limited defense budget, the focus on the economic miracle, uh, the rehabilitation of military forces, the, the, the treaty with the U.S. I mean, those are structural decisions that set Japan for, you know, 100 years. So I, I would still put mm -hmm. Yoshida above Abe, right? With Abe, we will sure. know in the future what was structural impact and what was more conjectural. Um, so... Abe had two stints. You know, he also was an active politician right. before that as chief cabinet secretary for, for uh, Koizumi. Under Koizumi, his big impact was to push up the North Korea issue, particularly the abductees. Uh, in his first uh, term, 2006-2007, he was actually a more low-key figure. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's remembered, you know, for a very nationalist uh, politician, he's in his first week in office, he went to China and Korea. So that was... That took everybody by surprise. So he oh, showed really? a pragmatic uh -huh. streak uh, mm -hmm. under Chief Cabinet Secretary uh, Shiozaki, who was a reformist, you know, so a uh, very sort of pragmatic guy. Um, but then he kind of moved on to try to move toward uh, reforming the Constitution, uh, reforming education, uh, toward mm -hmm. more conservative education curriculum. And, and that kind of crashed him very quickly. He, he went down in, in popular support because there was no popular support for those policies. Uh, and within a year, he had left due to health issues, a sudden departure uh, due to his health crisis. But he had also lost the upper house election before that due to his loss of popularity. The one thing he did do in that first term was initiate much better relations with, with India. Uh, and uh, and that's when he kind of played a key role in launching the Quad, which followed up on uh, you know on the tsunami, and the initiation mm -hmm. of a much better strategic relation between Japan and India. That was in that first term, mm -hmm. and he traveled to India, okay. and actually mm -hmm. I, I, he already met uh, Modi at the time, uh, who was the premier of Gujarat. Okay. Uh, yeah, Gujarat. Yeah, mm -hmm. Gujarat, and who was uh, sanctioned by other Western countries, but Abe went straight to him, and for that reason, uh, you know, Modi uh, found probably Abe to be the closest uh, Western leaders uh, to him. So mm -hmm. the Modi Abe relationship is incredibly close, and probably he was the closest leader to Modi uh, outside the region. So, you know, that all goes back to that first term. Um, then the second term, uh, he comes back. It's a huge surprise. Nobody thought he would return to power because he left power with such shame and such ignominy, you know, faxing his resignation from hospital and having not accomplished much, having lost the election. Um, and, you know, and he had a tough time in the desert right he went hiking he tried new medicine he uh, built study groups you know it was a really lonely time and then boom you mm. know because of the total disaster of the of the ldp in 2009 which led to many top politicians defeated um and the collapse of dpj uh, after that and uh 311 and all kind of disasters there is an empty spot right and he shows up uh in 2012 um, and he came up with a new approach, right? He learned his lesson. So he's a good learner. He learned what did not work. 
he took a very different approach. He built a new, uh, you know, approach to economic policy. We'll talk about abenomics. And, and he came back. And from 2012 to 2020, at least to 2018, what's remarkable about Abe is that it's the first time since maybe the 1970s that the LDP uh, had complete uh, autonomy, complete uh, control of politics in Japan. There was no more opposition. The opposition had been destroyed. Um, mm -hmm. And so Abe had a complete control of the field and he could do anything he wanted. So it's an exceptional time in Japanese politics. Uh, we hadn't seen that since the, you know, maybe Ikeda Sato time or maybe some, you know, uh, uh, the early 70s. But so that's the remarkable part. And then he uses that to indeed uh, launch some major initiatives. So he's the first prime minister, at least in, you know, Koizumi did a bit of it, but at least in 30 years to think strategically and to launch some strategic initiatives. Um, one of them um, is... Uh, you know, the trade policy that Japan will follow. I guess we'll talk about this in a minute, but saving the mm -hmm. TPP, uh, you know, finishing the EU-Japan strategic partnership, playing a lead role in RCEP, playing a lead role in managing the Trump presidency and having a deal, a trade deal with the US. So that's one huge plank. Um, and another big plank is on the security side by being essentially the brainfather of the Indo-Pacific or the free and open Indo-Pacific concept that is so hot nowadays uh, and nudging the US to take it on, right? And he, he's the one who pushed uh, Trump and eventually uh, Biden. Uh, and mm -hmm. then really upgrading the quad. Uh, mm -hmm. This is all mm -hmm. his legacy, um, you know, sort of big stroke. And then it's some good legacy with the G20 in 2019. And, um, you know, a particularly interesting paradox with China, because on one hand, when he came to power, uh, he, he was very emotional about three things, you know, uh, the, re the constitution and restoring a normal Japan as a great power uh, and really uh, absolving the shame of the war. Uh, and he never accepted the Tokyo Tribunal, never took it as, as uh, legitimate, never accepted the uh, you know, essentially the judgment on World War II, he felt Japan who had been shortchanged and Japan had been right. <laughs> so he has a big revisionist agenda there and he wants Japan as a normal nation uh, again. Uh, and then another issue has been very strong emotional views on Korea and on China and the threat that China's rise represents to Japan. He has strong views on that, very strong. However, Halfway through his term, uh, especially 2017, 18, 19, he, he takes on a pragmatic approach to China, as he did in 2007 in that first week in power. And, and he ends up having deals with China on the economy, you know, that paves the way for RCEP, having very successful trilateral meetings, China, Korea, Japan. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and the G20 in 2019 was accompanied by a bilateral summit where there were ten, a 10 point agreement. And it was even an acceptance that they could cooperate on Belt and Road. Uh, that, that's Abe's. So this is with China. That, that this, yeah, with China. This yeah. 10 point agreement was uh, concluded. Yeah, two days before mm -hmm. the G20. Uh, and mm -hmm. that included a promise to cooperate on Belt and Road in Southeast Asia. Uh, mm -hmm. and so those, those were astonishing pragmatic breakthroughs, you know, while he's doing the quad and, and opening the Pacific, which is the sort of security pushback on China. 
but sure. so he's a multi-tracker. Okay. Uh, something else is what? he has very close relationships to uh, <laughs> authoritarian leaders. So his closest buddies were Modi, Putin, and Erdogan. <laughs> and From he Turkey. has particularly uh, <laughs> a close relationship with all three of them. And so we can talk about that. But so he had a, a very realist foreign policy when he came to those uh, trying to advance Japanese interests, right? So he's not a complete ideologue on democracy, right? He's a, he wants to get things right. done. <laughs> well, but, the, but this is an interesting, it, it leaves an interesting question, which was, you know, many have, have, you know, kind of criticized him for his nationalist policies. Yet you've just described a whole, um, you know, table full of very internationalist uh, encounters. So how do we, how do we square that up that, you know, all these, you know, the trade agreements, uh, TPP or CPTPP, um, agreements with China, agreements, uh, you know, going forward uh, with uh, digital, that's the Osaka agreement, uh, you know, data free flows with trust. But these, these are all internationalists. I mean, so how, how does one, you know, kind of capture him then? Um, right. So, uh, and it's two answers to that. But to to finish the the layout of that picture, sure, it, sure. It, it's it's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, you know, the reach. Abe. You know, one thing we could say about Abe is the, he's the Japanese foreign minister who traveled the most abroad. That part is correct. More than Yoshida, yeah. most more than anyone. Uh, and for example, he traveled more. And Trump. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. To, to visit with Trump. Right, the yeah, first foreign leader to visit Trump uh, right yeah. after the election. Right uh, after the election, that's right. And the, so, yeah, he managed to build relationships across the across the board. Uh, right. And sometimes he could speak the democracy, the democracy, human rights speak, and sometimes he would leave it in the cupboard. Right. So the two ways to understand, you know, his reach and you know this kind of broad mix of things uh, is number mm -hmm. one. Abe is a very Asian leader. In that sense, Asian culture, right? Uh, it's similar to what you find out of Vietnam or what you find out of sometimes Chinese leaders. Uh, is yin and yang, it's contradiction. The, you know, the, the black and white, good and evil thing, that's very Western. That's very, you know, uh, that's Cartesian Western views. Uh, <laughs> most Asian leaders, you know, look at Indonesia today, right? They they can do A and B at the same time. They do yin and yang, and they try to push one side, but they never go all the way. There is a belief in the middle pathway. You need to balance off things. So you pursue some idealism, but you also take care of your economic interest, and you take care of your security interest, and you build relationship with neighbors, whoever they are, because the neighbors are there. Uh, and that's, you know, you find Korea doing similar things. So Abe, in that sense, He's a very Asian leader. Um, mm -hmm. And the second thing about Abe is that he has extremely strong personal views. Uh, and those views are linked to his family, to his grandfather, Kishi, who, who for three years was in jail under the Americans from 45 to 48 as a potential uh, war criminal, class A, um, mm -hmm. and was mm -hmm. eventually released in 48 without a trial only because of a political decision is their turnaround, right? The, the reverse line of the Americans pushing out all the new dealers 
uh, so it's it's not a decision based on based on the merits of the of the case. It's a decision right. for expediency right. that they need some sure. guys out to govern right. Japan again in the Cold War. Um, and so on all this, Abe had extremely strong views, he, and uh, he wanted to um, to rectify. And so he has a strong Amer anti-American view out of that. He wants mm -hmm. to get rid of the American imposed constitutions. He wants a real army. He wants to get rid of the American-run Tokyo Tribunal, and yet at the same time, he's doing, uh, you know, he's doing very pro-U.S. alliance activities. So to understand this kind of contradiction, I think uh, ultimately, it's what I heard from interviews is you have to look at his pragmatism. Uh, mm -hmm. And once in office, he listens to officials. He spends a lot of time. He's not a casual leader. He spent a lot of time listening to uh, Gaimushov, a MOFA official, and Meti official. He's very close to Meti in particular. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when Meti explained patiently, you know, the needs of the Japanese economy, the needs of Japanese companies for stability in the region, for uh, security of, of agreements, he, you know, he would get that. And he's like, okay, I have emotions, but I need also to uh, stabilize the national interest here. Um, and so that's why you have a different behavior and different uh, positions by Abe in office and outside office. Outside office is not embedded in this web of officials. Uh, mm -hmm. And he doesn't have all those mm -hmm. meetings and briefings. And he, you know, he expresses more uh, his deep beliefs. But in power, you know, it, in that sense, he was a very serious leader. And his intelligence is very hardworking. Um, and officials had... Uh, in a way, he was popular with many officials because he, he worked hard with them. Well, I mean, fascinating. So in a way, the label that you would apply is really pragmatic as opposed to, you know, internationalist versus nationalist. So uh, and that that, you know, it makes sense uh, in in the description you've given us. Um, I guess then uh, two areas that I'd like to cover before we complete it. One is. Abenomics. Now, clearly, this is domestic policy making. What was the objective that he was seeking with Abenomics? Uh, so it's it's an amazing story. It's also a marketing story. Uh, so mm -hmm. this whole idea of Abenomics and the three arrows came uh, together in 2012, talking to a few advisors like Kozo Yamamoto and others, some outside advisors as well, like Hamada uh, Hamada-san from Yale, professor, but. Um, it was a real breakthrough because Abe had not been interested in economics before. Uh, and uh -huh. he had a change of mind after 3.11, after the collapse, uh, the nuclear accidents and the earthquake and tsunami. Um, oh, okay. You mean Fukushima? He, yeah, Fukushima. And he yeah. also understood that his pet issues would not get traction with the public. And the public wanted solutions on the economic front. So he went to study okay. with some advisors. And and it was and somehow you know those conversations led to that breakthrough moment in 2012 of Abenomics, and it's a combination of several things. The first arrow, which is um, you know the monetary arrow to do QE essentially, right, uh, and unlock the BOJ, was yeah. essentially heavily influenced by Paul Krugman and uh, uh, Posen now at P, uh, uh, PII Adam Posen. Adam yeah. Posen, right? At, and and yes. those outside voices, right? Mm -hmm. 
and so and this was those, quantitative easing that he, right. he uh, proposed, right? Monetary right. A, policy, a massive intervention by the BOJ mm -hmm. uh, yeah. to you know to lower interest rate the maximum. They're already at zero anyway, and so since you can't lower them further, uh, and indicate both an inflation target at two percent and completely new methods, which is to buy bonds, essentially, treasury bonds, bonds right. until you right. get to 2%, <laughs> which they never <laughs> did, but they're about to get there now <laughs> with the inflation <laughs> worldwide. But Right. Um, right. And, and that is, so of the three arrows of abenomics, that's the one that's going to have the biggest impact. You know, it's going to carry the day. First, it inspired the public in the 2012 election, and that's how he wins the election in 2012. And mm -hmm. then he, he nominates uh, Kuroda, the new BOJ governor, with the instruction to go crazy. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Kuroda does go crazy. And the immediate impact in 2013 is the yen goes down by like 20% more, right? Uh, 20 mm -hmm. to 30%. And that yen uh, decline uh, leads to an explosion of exports. So the real revolution of Abe in early 2013 is an export boost. Boost, and that's immediate, right? And the some G7 countries are like, uh, what's going on here? This looks like currency manipulation, right? So his next victory was to convince uh, the Americans uh, and Europeans that this was purely uh, dealing with uh, deflation. And this was not uh, about foreign currency, even though the boost it got in the economy came from exports. Um, right. So that's the first arrow. So it's a package, right? The Sabinomics. The second arrow was going to spend more fiscally, uh, you know, to have a second leg, a second booster uh, against deflation. Mm -hmm. But that arrow never went very far. It was limited. Um, and then a couple of years later, it turns around and does uh, fiscal consolidation under influence right. from Muff. So that second arrow is muffled, right? It's like, where was it in the end? Mm -hmm. um, and then the third arrow was the one everybody was watching for, the structural reforms. Um, mm -hmm. Of the economy, and, right. right. Initially, yeah. most of it was dusting off blueprints from Koizumi time, which were in METI. And all the stuff mm -hmm. Koizumi couldn't do uh, when he stepped down mm -hmm. in 2006 and revive all that, uh, you know, entrepreneurship and the like. Uh, but then he added to that uh, trade. So trade agreements became uh, a, lev a lever to further liberalize the economy. He added mm -hmm. agriculture, agricultural liberalization, and he did a lot there. Uh, including, you know, getting the TPP approved with some uh, some changes, and there's been real reforms of agriculture. Um, and then he tried to do womanomics to increase the woman's position, participation, to, right? right? Participation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, eventually, there is, you know, it morphs. The structural side, the third arrow, evolves over the years, and eventually starts pushing a society 4.0, which is about AI and digitalization and entrepreneurship. Um, and then some service boosting, but nothing was really a breakthrough, right? It was all limited. Some helped in some front, but others didn't. And then there was a whiplash. That is, Abe had another streak because he's also a traditionalist, uh, you know, a very Meiji kind of politician. You know, Meiji was about the state 
playing a key role to boost the economy for national interest, right? And so sometimes when he got to the management of Nissan and other major foreign firms in Japan, he actually wanted to, you know, kind of push them out. And he was personally involved in making sure that Renault did not merge with Nissan and did not finalize that merger, which is what happened around, you know, the Gone saga. Uh, so Gone, of course, had his own, his own mistakes, uh, being greedy uh, and trying to get more pay than the Japanese system was ready to give him. But he uh, was also caught in this mega fight between Macron on one hand, who wanted to advance French national interests and capture Nissan completely by a merger, and Abe and Meti on the other side, who were determined to stop that and to stop any major takeover of Japanese firms by foreigners. So there was this kind of stuff. And he also promoted traditional Japanese values, traditional corporate approaches. So the discourse of Abe did not always follow the Koizumi kind of structural reform discourse, right? There was uh, inconsistency there. <laughs> okay. Uh, finally, I mean, uh, looking more on to the international side, or at least the Indo-Pacific side, what was in his uh, thinking about that, you know, the establishment of the Quad in 2007 and the discussions about the, uh, he raises the term Indo-Pacific, although there's some dispute about it, but leaving that aside, the point is, he, he could see, you know, to the region itself, what was in, in his mind in terms of the development of uh, Japanese foreign policy with respect to this? There is a yin-yang uh, nature uh, to the Indo-Pacific <laughs> strategy of, of Abe. Uh, there is a main thrust and then there's a second thrust. The okay. main thrust is... And it's it's really strategic leadership. You know, not many leaders do do those things because he had time and he had a strategic vision, and so he was able to do strategic thinking. And that strategic thinking was: we're facing a new region because of the rise of China. Uh, the China. power yeah. rise of China is phenomenal, right? In mm -hmm. two thousand, mm -hmm. uh, Japan was four times the size of the Chinese economy. You know, China was 25% of Japan. In 2013, they become equal. And mm -hmm. in 2021, China is 315% of Japan. So, you know, if you're in Japan, you're watching that. So it's not so much the, you know, what we talk about in, in uh, the US, which is the hardline dimension of the Xi Jinping regime. That, you know, it's secondary. The primary thing is the power shift. You know, mm -hmm. you go from being four times bigger to being a third of the size. And of course, China builds the military to go with this. And right. this military is showing up all over Japanese islands, showing up in straits. It's really, uh, you know, pushing the limits all around the Japanese archipelago. And so if mm -hmm. you're Japan, you feel threatened. Uh, of course, the Senkaku Diawitai dispute of 2012 added to that sense of great threat in Japan. This um, is the East China Sea disputes. Well, there's both things. East China Sea is about oil, and it's, but mm -hmm. there is also the island disputes. Islands, uh, right, right. That are under Japanese uh, administration, but that are right. officially, internationally, they are seen as disputed. So, uh, Senkaku Diaoyu. Um, so, two different East China issues. <laughs> um, 
And so Abe's response was, we face a structural problem. It's a long-term problem. We need to build up some better tools. And mm -hmm. the U.S. alliance is the prime defense. But first, we are not sure 100% forever. And then second, we need to complement this. And so that's why he came up with the idea of having a quad, especially as a way to bring India in, in an alliance so -called of so-called democracy, but it's more national interest based, uh, an, an alliance really to have leverage and, and some pressure over China, some pushback mm -hmm. on China to make sure Asia is not a complete Chinese lake, right? Um, and he wanted to also push back on the rule of law in the South China Sea. So there's a rule of okay. law dimension, there's a security dimension, and a strategic, you know, it's about network building. Let's build long-term networks with India and then separately a very, very, very intense engagement with Southeast Asia. It's not part of the quad, but you also had the same right. thinking. We're right. going to build profound networks. Uh, and all this will be a hedge if China gets overbearing. Um, that's the yin side. Now, the yang side is that he has the second pillar in there in the free and open Indo-Pacific, which China, the U.S. doesn't have. And that's, the, that's an economic pillar. And that economic pillar is open to China. And that's where under that second pillar of free and open Indo-Pacific, they are open to working with China on Belt and Road projects in Southeast Asia. Leveraging Chinese money but nudging mm -hmm. them to what Japanese standards. That's the brilliant, uh, you know, the brilliant Japanese mind. I mean, it's brilliant in many ways. But, um, mm -hmm. And there is other dimension. RCEP, you know, obviously being one because it's trade creates, policy. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, that's fascinating. It's just fascinating uh, the broad strokes that he, he brought to being prime minister in the two in the two periods that he was in fact, Prime Minister. So Eve, I want to thank you for opening up this just really fascinating discussion around uh, Abe and, uh, you know, the impact of Abe, uh, obviously on Japan, but also obviously uh, in the region as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure joining the podcast.